This is ScienceWise, Questions at the Confluence of Science and Ethics, a podcast produced in conjunction with the Nobel Conference at Gustavus Adolphus College. I'm your host, Lisa Heldke, Director of the Nobel Conference and Philosophy Professor at Gustavus. This fall's Nobel Conference is taking place virtually on October 6th and 7th, 2020. You can find details about how to participate on the Gustavus webpage. The theme of the conference is Cancer in the Age of Biotechnology. It will focus on the spectacular successes being realized by these new biologically derived drugs and on the challenges that many persons with cancer face in trying to access treatment. Because of the success of these new treatments and older, more traditional treatments, many people are living with cancer as a lifelong chronic condition. In light of that fact, how do we think about treatment and care for the whole person, not just treating the cancer? Today's guest, Professor Katherine Schmitz, is a leading researcher in the role of exercise and nutrition in cancer treatment and has been working on just this question, among others. There are almost 16 million cancer survivors in the United States, a number that is rising as those new treatments improve rates of cancer survivorship. Those rising rates mean that the demand for care for cancer survivors is also on the rise. But what exactly does care for cancer survivors mean? Hint, it definitely involves nutrition and exercise in two separate but related ways. In the first place, the health needs of people recovering from cancer or living with cancer include the ordinary challenges of healthy living, with which we all contend, challenges that include eating well and exercising. No surprise there. But a growing body of evidence from the field of exercise physiology shows that exercise and nutrition can also contribute directly to the long-term success of an individual's cancer treatment. In other words, diet and exercise are themselves effectively cancer treatments. We're all familiar with the evidence that shows that what we eat or drink or smoke can increase our risk for certain kinds of cancer, but this new research is demonstrating the positive effects of intervening to modify behavior in cancer patients and survivors. More than 600 randomized controlled trials show the benefits of exercise, for instance. Given this mounting body of evidence, it is, uh, Dr. Schmitz argues, shocking that clinicians are still not making exercise part of the standard treatment plan for persons with cancer. Katherine Schmitz's work are, addresses both cancer prevention and cancer management. Her work integrates physical science research with the social science tools of behavior modification. She studies behavior-related risk factors for cancer, including physical activity levels, eating habits, and body size. One body of her research studies the effectiveness of strength training, both for persons undergoing cancer treatment and for cancer survivors. Most recently, Dr. Schmitz has been studying the treatment of colon cancer by analyzing the criteria used to determine the effect of a strength training intervention on the dosage of chemotherapy tolerated by patients. Currently, chemotherapy dosage is determined using a formula based on the patient's body surface area, which is calculated using their BMI. The method has resulted in numerous instances of both overdosing and underdosing. Dr. Schmitz is studying the effectiveness of dosing based on a patient's fat mass and muscle mass rather than surface area. The results of her research have the potential to improve the prognosis for persons with colon cancer. In public talk, Schmitz asserts that, quote, the body is meant to be in motion and will do better. We will do better if we are in motion, 
even if we are very sick with cancer. This means that exercise is medicine in oncology. To combat the notion that it's too difficult to find the time to exercise, Schmitz champions the idea of exercise snacks, brief bouts of exercise that can happen anywhere, anytime, regardless of what you're wearing. Katherine Schmitz has served as president of the American College of Sports Medicine, and her work has appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise. A professor in the Department of Public Health Sciences at Penn State, she is chair of the governance board for the Exercise is Medicine Global Initiative and founder of the Moving Through Cancer Initiative of the American College of Sports Medicine. Welcome to ScienceWise, Professor Schmitz. I'm exhausted. <laughs> so much. I'm a little embarrassed. <laughs> well, let me just say it is the fair beginning of what you have done. Right. Well, I'm very tired now. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm delighted. Oh. To be I'm so glad, and we are so looking forward to uh, welcoming you to campus, even if it is only virtually this fall. So I wanted to start with a question I'm asking everyone, which is, um, as you know from our advanced uh, materials about the conference, the Nobel Conference audience is this crazy audience that is unusual in its breadth and age. It includes high school seniors to very senior elders, and also unusual in its breadth of education. There are folks taking their first you know, social science or lab science class, and then there are people who have PhDs in your very field. So I figure uh, if this were an elevator question, it would have to be a freight elevator to hold a representative sampling of that audience. So if you were on that freight elevator with a representative sampling of that audience, what would you tell them that you study? And how do you describe what it is that you do, literally? How do you do what you do? I would tell them that I am a clinical trialist. Um, I think that's a, a fairly familiar term to people. I do clinical trials. Um, and I do them in people living with and beyond cancer. Um, and my uh, intervention of interest is uh, exercise in all its many forms. Um, and the things that I'm looking to change in people can vary from um, how they're feeling and you know, psychosocial outcomes to uh, physiologic outcomes, body composition, and um, uh, chemotherapy completion rates, which you noted in the in the introduction. Um, so that would that would be I would kind of organize it around um, uh, what uh, when I taught epidemiology at the University of Minnesota, we used to call the epidemiologic triangle, which is you know you want to know what the population is, you want to know what the exposure is. Uh, you want to know what the outcome is and you want to know what the intervention or the vector is. And so if you can organize things in a triangle with the vector in the middle or the intervention in the middle, then you can kind of organize your thinking around what, um, you know, what, what somebody does. And so my population is cancer patients. My intervention is exercise. My outcomes vary. Um, yeah. So, you know, that hopefully organizes things for you. Yes, yes. Would you say a little bit about that word intervention? Because the minute you start talking about exercise and diet and you add the word intervention, people start getting nervous. I don't know, at least this people does. What's an, what's an intervention? Okay, so uh, the, the concept um, of uh, a clinical trial is that we 
we, what we would really, really like um, is uh, to be able to time travel. So we would get uh, gather a group of people and we would measure them uh, for whatever we're trying to change in them. And we would um, offer them, you know, uh, a bicycling program, say, or a weightlifting program, whatever intervention we're interested in having them do three times a week of cycling or whatever we're doing with them. And then we measure them again. And then we would like to hire Superman and fly the earth backwards in time and then have those very same people go through the exact same time frame. But this time we don't have them do the intervention. We can't do that, obviously. Um, so uh, instead, we do the next best thing. And that is uh, we randomize people to receiving this intervention thing um, that we're going to do or to not receive it. And everybody goes through time and gets measured before and after. Uh, the nature of the interventions that I work with do vary quite a bit. Um, I, uh, I am you know, interested, as you mentioned in the introduction, in this idea of an exercise snack. So very, very brief interventions. I have a number of colleagues I'm working with on, on those ideas at Penn State. Um, you know, I'm interested in the idea of just simply do more, just something, anything. Now, get up, mess, you, get off the chair, yes. I do mean you. Um, I am standing. I have a standing workstation. Outstanding. Huh. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, and, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the, the other is, you know, something very complex where we're asking people to, you know, exercise, uh, you know, five exercises, five times each, increasing the weight by this amount every time, you know, very, very complex kinds of interventions happen in my studies as well. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. That's a that's a great description. Um, so, as I also mentioned in the intro, uh, you use this phrase. You've, you give talks with that title, and you you use it in casual conversation. You've co-authored a paper with the title "Exercise in Me- is Medicine in Oncology." For folks who haven't thought about that idea before, how would you how would you um, unpack that a little bit more? I mean, we might think, well, yes, we know exercise is is valuable for us, and by the way, I do exercise, um, but what um, what does it mean? What what do we add when we say no, no? It is literally medicine. It is a medical treatment. Yep. Um, so uh, you mentioned in your intro that there's over six hundred randomized controlled trials that have shown uh, benefit of exercise for people living with and beyond cancer, and uh, so we have a number of very specific cancer health related outcomes for which we know a very precise amount of exercise that we can prescribe like a medicine. So those eight outcomes beyond, you know, I'm not even talking about cancer itself. I'm talking about fatigue, pain, quality of life, depression, anxiety, bone health, sleep, lymphedema. So physical function, all of those things are improved with three times a week aerobic exercise and twice a week strength training during cancer treatment. Uh, so, so we now, uh, you know, because we've done these, you know, massive systematic reviews over the past few years on these topics, um, we now are able to prescribe exercise the way we prescribe medicine. So let me just sort of unpack that a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, with chemotherapy, we don't just, we don't say go chemotherapy, you know, <laughs> like, like we say, go exercise, right? <laughs> So, you know, we don't say that. We say, you know, I want you to come here on Wednesday at three o'clock and we are going to infuse, you know, 300, 
you know, milligrams per kilogram of, uh, you know, I'm making up that dose. But the point is that there is this precise dosing of, of you know, doxorubicin. And, uh, you know, uh, that's going to be in a cocktail along with this other drug. And, you know, and we're going to do that again in three weeks. And we're going to do that four times. And that's going to be your your chemotherapy, right? So we're able to, when we think about prescribing chemotherapy, we think about prescribing when it's going to happen. So, and how frequently it will happen, how many weeks you will do the program, uh, the dose of the drugs and what types of drugs are included and at what dose. And so what we can now do with tremendous precision, and I'll give you an example, is we can prescribe exercise and we know that three times a week of aerobic exercise up to 30 minutes plus twice weekly strength training is an ideal exercise prescription for combating cancer-related fatigue, which is, you know, enjoyed, haha, not enjoyed by, you know, over 90% of patients as they're going through their treatment. Um, And so, uh, but at the same time, we are unable to conclude that uh, resistance training does much for anxiety or depression for people going through treatment, which could be because we don't have enough studies, or it could be because that's not the right type of exercise to help someone with anxiety and depression during cancer treatment. We don't know yet, but the point is that we're able to prescribe with the precision of the number of times per week, the intensity with which you need to do the exercise. Luckily, that's not very intense. Um, and, and how long the program needs to be in order to have a physiologic effect that results in changes in symptoms. I, I know that we want to talk about this in more detail in the last portion of the uh, interview, but I have to say there is something astonishing about the fact that on the one hand, this feels utterly obvious, like, of course, we could figure this out. Uh, it's kind of stunning that we that that folks are only now coming around to the idea. Mm-hmm. And yes. our, well, there's there's a history to this. And it's not our first rodeo dealing with this in the field of exercise oncology, or I'm sorry, exercise physiology. So so let me give you a little bit of a history. Back mm-hmm. When I was, um, you know, at the, the beginning of my career as a as a as an exercise trainer, I was a, a personal trainer in New York City, back in the 1980s, um, and early 1990s. And um, uh, at that point, we were just at that point making the transition from telling everyone with back pain to rest to recognizing that, in fact, rest was terrible for somebody with back pain, that, in fact, uh, you know, you shouldn't uh, rest, that you should avoid rest if you have back pain. And going back even farther, um, it, you know, if you ask, I'm going to hazard a guess that everyone who uh, listens to your podcast, high school students included, would, you know, if I were to ask, hey, you know, is exercise good for your heart? Hey, your dad had a heart attack. Should your dad be exercising to strengthen his heart in the months after his heart attack? Pretty much everybody in the United States would say, yes, I agree. That's, that is a true statement. Well, that wasn't always true. And great example of this, back in the 1950s, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, when he was sitting president, had a heart attack. And he was treated at Bethesda Naval uh, Hospital and was um, released uh, from the hospital three weeks after his heart attack. And his, uh, his uh, cardiologist at the time, Paul Dudley White, very famous cardiologist, was sharply, sharply criticized by his colleagues. 
for getting the president out of bed so soon. (laughs) So three weeks, three weeks after his heart attack. So, So what happened? What happened in the intervening time between the 1950s and say the 19, I'm going to guess, 80s, maybe, um, when, um, you know, there was a a shift, there was some kind of tipping point that happened. Well, certainly there was some research, but in addition to the research, there was a lot of advocacy that happened on the part of um, the American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, the American College of Sports Medicine. Um, There were efforts to try to get um, policies changed so that cardiac rehabilitation would be covered by insurance. Um, and to develop cardiac rehabilitation programs in every, you know, you know, city and hamlet across the country. Um, and so um, uh, we think we probably we also have some popular press books there. You know, you might remember Jim Fix, the running book and, you know, uh, Peter Cooper or uh, Kenneth Cooper's aerobics revolution. Um, so, you know, there was there were a number of things. Today, it's, it's probably going to, you know, Twitter will probably play some, some <laughs> role. Um, social media will play a role um, in, in tipping the balance. But we are, we are there. We are at the point where the balance is being tipped. And I don't know exactly when it will happen. But the day is coming within the time of my career, which is, you know, rapidly you know, approaching its end, um, when... Exercise will be standard practice. It will be because it will be unconscionable. It will be unethical. It will be seen as unethical to uh, to not have an exercise program as part of your cancer program. That's a great illustration. And I can remember, <clears throat> I'm a little bit older than you, but I can remember uh, some of those, um, some of those sea changes quite vividly. Uh, Great, great point. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I wonder if you want to talk just a little bit about um, one particular body of research, just because I think it it really illustrates this well, and that is your ongoing work on um, breast cancer and the recommendations about weightlifting for women, because it seems like that might be an area in which there is some real shift, or at least there's shift among um, women who go to the kinds of physical therapists who believe in the research. <laughs> yes. Yes. So I'm very, very proud of this. This is a, a, among the sort of my, you know, sort of peak points for my, for my career. When I started doing research in exercise and cancer in 2000, the American Cancer Society, the Susan Komen Foundation, the National Cancer Institute, the National Lymphedema Network, um, uh, all of these organizations and any other advocacy organizations out there that you can think of all had something on their website that said women uh, with and at risk for breast cancer related lymphedema um, should avoid lifting anything heavier than five to 15 pounds ever again in their lives um, on the affected side. And, um, you know, we've, we've, uh, I am, you know, part of a team of researchers. Um, you know, I certainly have, have played played an important role, but there have been many people who have contributed to the research that uh, has reversed that guidance. And uh, it is a great, great thing because uh, women were told to avoid doing anything with their upper bodies in a way that actually potentially placed them in harm's way 
with regard to the very outcome that, uh, that we were trying to avoid. Um, because not doing anything with the upper body would cause deconditioning in a manner that could actually lead to the increase in risk for lymphedema. So by virtue of doing nothing, doing less with their upper bodies, they were potentially, uh, you know, their doctors were potentially putting them in harm's way. And your um, work went on to, or you, you, uh, you did controlled studies that showed that a gradual, am I right, that a gradual weightlifting program would actually... Yes. So, uh, so the biggest trial in this area was the one that I conducted called the PAL trial and um, physical activity and lymphedema. And we recruited 295 breast cancer survivors. Um, half of them started the study with risk for lymphedema. The other half started the study having previously been diagnosed with lymphedema. And what we were able to show is that by doing a slowly progressive uh, weight training uh, program at the YMCA um, over the course of one year, the women with lymphedema had a 50% reduction in the likelihood of having a flare-up of their lymphedema, um, which could you know, mean there could have been cost savings here. And uh, in addition, the women at risk for lymphedema who had five or more nodes removed, which placed them at elevated risk for developing lymphedema, had a 70% reduced risk of, uh, of increased arm swelling, which is the definition of onset of lymphedema. So uh, we saw a preventive effect um, as well as a treatment effect. Really interesting. We've talked several times already about the number of studies and clinical trials that have gathered and to support your claim that um, exercise is medicine for, for folks with cancer. Um, as I'm sure you know, there is some skepticism about that uh, in some corners. I came upon um, a report from an organization called Science Nordic that was reporting on a talk you'd done, I think, last fall in, in uh, Copenhagen. And they worried that you were overly optimistic about the findings of these studies because they said, well, you know, look, people don't tell the truth about how much they exercise or what they eat. And the studies are too small to be as significant as the researchers are, are claiming. Can you respond to... Um, you know, this or more general um, skepticism about the role of, of exercise in, in cancer treatment? Absolutely. So um, it was Amsterdam, actually. Oh. Um, I was trying to figure out when we spoke earlier and you mentioned this, I was like, I wasn't in Copenhagen. Where was I? It was Amsterdam in September. Um, and, uh, and, and I can say a few things. Um, uh, one, um, you know, I, uh, there's, there's, a, there's an ethical issue here. Um, that I think uh, uh, we need to uh, be aware of. And that is, um, you know, anybody, including me, who says we need more research is likely somebody who makes their living doing research and needs to justify that more research is needed. So um, that said, I, I would agree that, um, you know, we certainly have more to learn, um, certainly about dose, certainly about, um, you know, there are particular outcomes that, we're not able to draw any conclusions about, but um, you know the fact that we're that we are where we are with the field. Um, at what point does it become uh, problematic um, to withhold exercise from patients uh, if we know that there is benefit? There have, in fact, been over two hundred trials 
on cancer-related fatigue alone. That's a lot of research. So, um, and, you know, yeah, some of them have been small, some have been quite large. So um, uh, I, I would also say that, you know, I remember early in my career working on exercise and cancer, having a, um, a nurse come up to me after I'd had kind of a rough go in giving a talk and I was trying to convince clinicians that we should be doing uh, exercise and they weren't having it and they, they thought I was going to hurt people. And, um, and, you know, this nurse came up to me and she said, you know, that she had been a cardiac nurse when they started trying to take patients to cardiac rehabilitation uh, sessions, even, you know, still in the hospital after, after a heart attack. And uh, that there were people who were terrified that those cardiac patients were going to come back in a body bag. Literally, they thought they were going to, you know, they thought, you know, that, that they were going to be killed by virtue of doing a little bit of exercise. And uh, so, so it's not a new story <laughs> um, from either perspective. You know, I mean, it's, it's the idea that, oh, no, we don't have enough evidence, so we shouldn't be exercising the patients. I would hazard a guess that my colleague at Science Nordic probably would disagree with the idea that we don't have enough exercise, enough evidence to exercise people, but would would also at the same time say, ah, yes, but we need more research. Perhaps, mm. you know, perhaps this person is a researcher and, and makes their living that way as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, you know, I have colleagues who are still doing research on, you know, mechanistic issues to you know, really understand the, you know, deeper um, physiologic underpinnings of why exercise does what it does to the cardiovascular system. Um, and that is really worthwhile research. So, um, so certainly we need more research, but the fact that we need more research doesn't mean, I mean, we need more research on cardi- uh, chemotherapy too. Should we stop <laughs> giving chemotherapy? <laughs> <laughs> well, well put. Uh, um as you know, the fall conference is exploring these brand new therapies, uh, you know, immunotherapies and molecularly targeted therapies, which have the virtue when they work for the admittedly small populations for whom they do work so spectacularly. They have the virtue of really not killing everything in sight, but rather killing the thing that needs to be killed. Uh, so presumably, they're less terrible for human bodies more generally. Have you done any work? Have, have you done any clinical trials uh, with folks who have experienced those therapies? Or we is that in the future? No, we've, we've included melanoma patients who uh, were receiving uh, immunotherapy in a large pragmatic trial that I've completed. Um, I actually was just, just looking at those data today. Um, so... Um, so we're starting to do that. I will say that I have had a, um, a you know, a lovely conversation um, uh, with Carl June, who is one of your other presenters. Um, I asked him the question, you know, hey, do you know whether uh, people who are more physically active or eat, you know, more healthy respond to immune therapy, respond to CAR-T therapy differently than people who are sedentary or eat a poor diet. And he said, no. And I said, do you believe that it's possible that uh, uh, that, that could make a difference in the efficacy of CAR-T therapy? And he said, absolutely. So, 
this is a this will be a brave new world. Um, nobody has done that research because you know we're just starting to get to know what happens to these patients. I will tell you, I think it's a bit of a misnomer to say that um, these patients are suffering less or or that there's you know fewer side effects. The side effects that come along with some of these newer targeted therapies and uh, immunotherapies are 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 voracious. Um, and and different, and I will not speak to what they are. I'd, I'd ask that you speak to uh, to Dr. June about that um, instead. But uh, I don't I don't think it's accurate to say that that we can say that these patients are are um, are you know that they are that they miss the opportunity for all of the fun that the regular chemotherapy patients get. Thanks for that. That's a really important clarification for me to have because I think we do talk about these. You know, when when you say targeted, then you think, oh well, then you can come home and and the next afternoon go golfing or something. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. Thanks. I'd like to switch gears. I have a lot more questions under the research thing, but I'm also looking at my timepiece here, and I want to make sure we get time to talk about both uh, your development and then also some of these ethical questions. So um, for those young researchers, future researchers, would-be researchers out there listening, um, what were you interested in as a kid? <laughs> because as an adult learner, you have been interested in a lot of things along the way. So what were you, what were you interested in when you were a kid? Um, so uh, one thing that's fun about you asking me this question at this particular moment is that I am currently rereading the book that was my favorite book when I was about 12. Um, and it's uh, Ursula Le Guin's The Wizard of Earthsea. Oh, so writing it down. Um, yeah, yeah, it's very, it's very interesting, and I'm like, why did I love this? Why, what was it? Um, and it's a good book, but it, you know, I just, I wonder. Um, I read a lot. Um, I, I in in seventh grade, um, I was introduced to modern dance um, by my physical education teacher, and fell in love with dance, and um, you know, started studying dance very seriously. Um, I was a, a, a dancer through high school, uh, actually, um, uh, uh, you know, left the high school I was supposed to, you know, I was targeted to go to, to go to a magnet school that allowed me to dance every day, um, went to college to be a dance major. Um, and then, um, at some point during college realized that, you know, that and a dollar 29 would get me a cup of coffee. So, um, uh, I, I decided I wanted something in, in, uh, in the business realm so that I could fall back on being an arts administrator, perhaps that was kind of an idea that I was, that I was, you know, thinking of, um, in college. And so I ended up, um, with a degree in economics of all things. Um, um, uh, it was economics as a social science. So economics of family, home and education, um, that was my, my focus. Um, so it's really, a, really a sociology degree with a little extra math. Um, it's kind of the way that I would put it. Um, and, uh, I very, very proudly went to, uh, my mother and grandmother's alma mater. I went to UNC Greensboro, um, which was the women's college of North Carolina until UNC, um, you know, allowed women. So, uh, anyway, so, so I got to New York and discovered that, um, 
Um, arts administrators don't make any money. And I figured if I was going to be poor, I might as well do what I loved. And I danced. Um, so my first um, five, six years in New York City were as a professional classical dancer. Um, and for your listeners who know who Martha Graham was, I was in the Graham Second Company um, and uh, got, to, got to dance with the, with the big company in the fall of 1988, I believe it was. Um, danced Primitive Mysteries and Celebration and probably one other one, I'm not thinking, not remember. Wow. So yeah, yeah, that was pretty special. Um, and, uh, and, but I was really a devotee. I was very much a Martha devotee and, um, she wanted her company to die with her because dancing is an ephemeral art. And, um, she did not want her company to become a museum of her work. Um, and so I, I saw that she was, um, dying. I saw that she was going to die and I, I left, um, actually stopped dancing. Um, and, uh, and got into fitness training, um, and, uh, you know, went through a, a certification program at Marymount Manhattan college back, you know, before anybody knew what these certifications were, um, and, uh, started working, uh, in corporate fitness in, um, uh, on wall street, um, uh, and was that early days for that sort of work or very much, well very, much very much yes and we got an account and at uh, Solomon Brothers and I ended up uh, managing the Solomon Brothers Executive Fitness Center at seven, uh, 47th floor of Seven World Trade which is one of the buildings that fell 9-11 and um, I was I was long gone by by the time 9-11 happened but um, uh, you know so so uh, and and I should back up and say that I come from a family of, of pointy-headed academics. I'm the youngest of five. Four of us have PhDs. Um, we're all educators. We're all, you know, in, involved in in uh, in science in some way or another. And um, uh, I was I was you know I was the dumb one in my family. Um, <laughs> And I, I mean that. Um, and, you know, what I didn't understand was, you know, the bell curve of my family, um, where I was at the bottom of the bell curve, was, you know, probably middle to high in the nation's <laughs> bell curve, you know. Wow. So, yeah. So, so um, you know, it really is. I mean, it's, I think it's really interesting and I think it's important for your younger listeners to really recognize that you know, you can only see what's around you. And if all is around you is all of the brilliant other students at Gustavus Adolphus, you know, then you may feel like, oh, I'm nothing, you know, but go out there in the world. You're going to figure out you are really something, you know. So um, it, I, I, uh, I, I avoided anything academic until I was close to 30 and uh, decided that I wanted to go get a master's because I wanted to make more money as a trainer. That was that's all. That's the only reason I was getting a master's. And then you went off and studied exercise physiology. Well, yeah. So, you know, I, <laughs> I was, I, was uh, I had an opportunity to work on a research study and I thought, well, you know, this is my one opportunity to understand what my family does, you know? Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I still remember the time I asked, I have a brother who's a glycobiologist, a distinguished professor at university of Georgia and, and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I, I once made the mistake of asking him at, at Christmas dinner, you know, you know, what do you actually do? And he said, well, I take rats and I 
you know, cut off their heads with a guillotine and I chop them up and I, you know, and I was like, Oh my God, never mind, You know? Um, and, um, and I'm sure he would really object to me characterizing his work that way, but that's what I remember hearing. Um, it's your podcast. That's yeah, exactly. Exactly. He can do one himself. Um, so anyway, um, so, uh, so, so, you know, I, I decided I wanted to work on a research project just so that I could understand what my siblings were talking about. And, you know, darn it, I really loved it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> jokes on me, you know. <laughs> so, um, so I decided that I wanted to go get a, a PhD in kinesiology and, uh, uh, you know, at the time I was, I was just about to get married to an actor who thought that being at the Guthrie theater in Minneapolis sounded like a terrific, terrific opportunity. Um, so it was a good fit. And, um, we moved to Minneapolis and I did my PhD there, stayed on for a postdoc and stayed on as faculty for, um, for four years. Hmm. So, yeah. so, how did those different fields of study now, of course, some of them are very deeply related, you know, kinesiology, exercise physiology, uh, and I guess also to some extent, at least epidemiology, but, uh, economics dance a little bit further afield. How do those come together for you in your work now? Um, maybe another way of asking it would be, how would you work differently today if you hadn't been an economist and a dancer? Right. So I think that um, economics and epidemiology are not that far apart. I will also say that I'm about to submit my first grant with a health economics uh, focus as the primary aim. So I'm coming full circle now. Um, and uh, so so I, the other thing is that I think that, um, uh, you know, when I was a dancer, I, I loved to dance. I did not love to perform. And um, really, it was the movement that was important to me. So um, what was really uh, uh, especially important to me was, was, the, was the, you know, getting my, my body moving. Um, I, I have struggled with anxiety um, over my whole lifetime. And when I am exercising more, I am better. Um, and, uh, I think that that's probably true for most people with anxiety. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it was, it was self-medication, um, and the form of movement that I was, that I gravitated towards as, as a young, as a girl and as a young woman was dance. Um, you know, now I, you know, I'm more diverse with, with other, other types of movement that I do. Um, but that was what was, you know, again, going back to, you know, you can only see the bell curve in front of you. I, I, the, the, the opportunities for movement that I saw recognize I'm a pre-Title IX woman. Yeah, me too. Right, right. So I think that, you know, the opportunities that were available to us as girls and young women were right. dance and dance and cheerleading and dance. I was going to say pom-pom squad. Right. Exactly. And, and, and flag, you know, the flag. <laughs> girl, and I don't remember. I'm sorry. I don't mean to belittle them. I don't know what they're called, but there's something with flags. Flag um, girls. So that was what they were called in my high school. <laughs> right, right. So, so, you know, it, it's completely possible that I might've been a soccer player had I been, you know, had I been born, you know, 10 years later, I still remember the moment of, you know, recognizing how my nieces were, 
you know, so incredibly physical and so in their bodies in such a different way than what my sister and I are um, because of what they're exposed to, you know, because they were exposed to it so young. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, so you did postgraduate work on cardiovascular disease, I think. When was the turn to cancer? And I'm wondering if it's, uh, you said in response to an interviewer that a single paper imploring a call to action offered a path previously unexplored by researchers with the opportunity to make a big difference in the medical field. Was that, was that the turn to cancer or? Yes. So, um, uh, so, so basically, um, um, Kristen Anderson at the University of Minnesota uh, was a mentor to me and then a colleague once I joined the faculty. And so I was a postdoc and um, she asked me, you know, if I had ever considered doing work in exercise and cancer. And I remember answering, well, I can spell cancer. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I, she said, you know, why don't you look into it? And so I did you know, what you can only do, you only have time to do as a postdoc. And that is, I spent about three weeks doing, you know, a really deep literature search and, and doing a lot of reading and, and paying attention to, um, you know, uh, to what was, what was out, what was out there and what wasn't out there. And what I realized in the reading was that there was a, a true opportunity that there was, you know, not kidding, getting the opportunity to get in on the ground floor of a brand new field that hadn't even been named, you know, it wasn't until 2005 that we started using the term exercise oncology and it hasn't been used really a lot until the past five years. Um, uh, and this would be a good juncture at which to note that your textbook exercise oncology has just come out. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. So um, there have been texts that have been similar in the past, but this is the first one that's been called exercise oncology. Um, so yeah, really, really, really proud of that work. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. The first chapter of it is, um, is a history actually of the field. And that's why I know what year we started using. (laughs) Um, it was coined by my colleague, Carrie Cornier, um, uh, and Christine Friedenreich. So, um, but yes, there was one paper that was exceedingly influential, Ann McTiernan wrote a paper in 1999 um, called um, literally a call to action. And um, uh, it was basically speaking to researchers with exactly the training that I had at that time, which is training in in exercise and uh, cardiovascular disease and other common chronic diseases and asking us to consider starting to work in the area of cancer because there was so much work to be done. Um, I wrote to her. She was at the Fred Hutchins Cancer Research Center in Seattle. She wrote me back. She met with me at a meeting. She shared grants and papers and, you know, was an incredible mentor to me early in my career. Hmm. That's a wonderful story. Uh, Your current assignments at Penn State include... Um, positions in public health sciences and in physical medicine and rehabilitation at the medical school, but also a professorship in kinesiology. Can you talk about how maintaining those different relationships enables you to do the kind of work that you do, or maybe to be more effective in doing that work? Or is it in fact a challenge and an impediment to that work? No, I've always, um, I've always been, uh, had an eye towards transdisciplinarity and, um, I've always preferred to, um, you know, I, I loved my time at the University of Minnesota. 
um, and being on the faculty of the School of Public Health. That said, I don't know that I would ever want to work in a school of public health again because I really, really like being in the setting of a medical school, um, despite the fact that I am, you know, PhD trained. Um, because I like having easy access to my clinical colleagues who teach me so, so much. Um, my clinical colleagues who challenge me on things like, really, do you have enough evidence? <laughs> yeah. um, and my clinical colleagues who challenge me on, no, there's no time to do that, Katie. There just is no time to do that. When in clinic would we possibly do that? Mm. So they challenge me on the logistics as well as the evidence. They tell me what matters to their patients. I feel like I have access to the people that really, for whom my work should matter most. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, one of my proudest moments actually at Penn State has been that I have two um, uh, medical oncology colleagues who have asked me to work with them to adapt one of my interventions specifically to meet a need that they have in their patient population. Um, and you know, that's, that's, that's real. Deep. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I, and I've always, I've always preferred to work in teams where I'm the only one who has, um, you know, my kind of training, um, you know, I, I, my happiest are the teams where, you know, there's like a three-legged or four-legged stool where there's, you know, a team where there's somebody who's got training in the, the clinical, somebody who's got training in the exercise, somebody who's got training in the biostatistics and then a behavioral person, you know, that kind of team is, mm -hmm. uh, I think, a really strong team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Uh, so now shifting gears yet again and going in that ethical direction that we've been tacking toward, uh, one of the things that I really want us to explore in this podcast is the relationship between scientific or social scientific questions and ethical questions, because that's really at the heart of what the Nobel Conference has been about all of its 56 years of existence. Um, and in some fields, that notion that um, ethical issues are connected to scientific issues is, is taken for granted. And in other fields, it's regarded as really controversial to say that there are ethical um, layers to a scientific question. Arguably in healthcare, the underlying assumption is a value judgment, right? That health is preferable to ill health and that people want to be healthy. So as a complete outsider to healthcare, I'm curious um, about um, how, um, how you think about that question. Yeah, you know, I, I'm going to answer you by telling you about a conversation I had with a, a new mentee that I have um, and, and talking about it in context of the truth about uh, a truth about healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, you know, I, I sit here speaking with you and, um, you know, we've talked about the fact that there's these, you know, 600 plus papers um, you know, with, with, uh, cancer patients and survivors and the benefits of exercise. And, um, you know, there's international guidelines from ACSM and from, you know, Australia and the national comprehensive cancer network and ACS and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, and, and I, and I have this frustration, this frustration that we have all these, you know, all this evidence and we have all these guidelines and we say that this should be happening and it's not happening. And so I think it's important to put that in context. And so I want to tell you about a conversation I had with a, um, a, a surgical oncologist yesterday. 
Um, and you know, he's, he's one of my mentees at, at Penn State in the junior faculty development program. And um, he, you know, he, he uh, is, is interested in doing research on something that has really, if, you, if, I, if I might, you can bleep me if you need to, piss me off. Um, and, uh, and, you know, what, what has really, you know, gotten his goat, if you will, is uh, that there is, um, uh, you know, excellent evidence and there are guidelines that say that if someone with colorectal cancer has a liver metastasis, they should be seen by a surgical oncologist because it is possible that that liver met could be resected by surgery and you can extend the person's life by months, if not years. Okay. Um, and yet it's not happening. And yet it's not happening. Okay. And so uh, I give this as, as, a, as a very particular example, but the truth is that this is true all over the place, that we have evidence that there are things that work in healthcare that are not happening. And they're not happening because of the stuck places for between the intervention that would work for the person and getting the person to that intervention. In my case, we know that exercise interventions are helpful for cancer patients, but how and the and and the programs are out there. They're, you know, they're proliferating all over the place. And there are a lot of virtual programs right now because of COVID. Um, but connecting the patient with the program means that somebody in the clinic has to say, hey, Lisa, you need to go do this program. Here's the number. Please make the call or somehow make the connection. Right. Okay. And in my colleague, the surgical oncologist example, the medical oncologist is the one treating the patient at the point when a colorectal cancer patient is it goes through a, an MRI and they determine that this person has a liver metastasis. The medical oncologist is the one who makes the determination, uh, I don't think that's resectable. Medical oncologist is not the one who has the training to be able to do that. So it's all about these sticky points. So we have these sticky points in healthcare. And the truth is, if you go and look, there is actually, believe it or not, a clearinghouse, a national clearinghouse of guidelines for healthcare, because there are so many guidelines out there for, for physicians and healthcare professionals to follow. They're not following them. We know things that are not actually getting to patients. That's happening all the time. This is a major ethical conundrum. And is it primarily because we all are trying to do too many things and we only have five moments for patients? Or is it in the case of uh, exercise also a prejudice against the notion that human beings can be active in their own healing and a prejudice toward things like drugs and invasive surgeries and so on? I mean, is there just sort of a, I remember learning that doctors didn't study um, nutrition in medical school, right. you know, back in the day. And I thought, what, you know, yeah. because yeah. the notion was, well, what could nutrition possibly have to do with your health? Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so absolutely. So I, I, I can tell you that it's both, it is both and it absolutely is both. And, um, one of the, you know, we're speaking about the ethical conundrums here. And, uh, you know, another ethical conundrum to me is that 
Uh, you know, if you if you look at pretty much any exercise program for cancer patients or any chronic disease population anywhere, anywhere, you have to get physician's permission. You have to get the physician to sign off saying, yes, it's okay for this patient to come. The physician doesn't know anything about exercise and does not know whether it would be safe for this person to do exercise. The physician is absolutely the wrong person to be signing that document. And yet the physician signs because the physician is the one who we as a, as a, as a society have decided will take the, uh, uh, the liability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, well said. A slightly different uh, question about an ethical you know, conundrum, I guess, is um, how do researchers and clinicians manage your own beliefs about what people ought to do when you're confronted with these darn humans who make different choices? I heard an interesting YouTube conversation you had in which a questioner, I think she was a, a physical therapist maybe, was expressing frustration that people weren't following the best advice. And you sort of matter-of-factly said, you know, look, it's our job to present people with the best advice but you know people really are free to do what they do um how do you how do you come to terms with that maybe um or how do you wrestle with that or is it in fact none of your darn business and you just provide the information and let the horse drink the water if it wants to right this is this is where i i'm i'm going to um uh say that i am blessed to get to work with brilliant behavioral scientists um Mm. And, uh, you know, those behavioral scientists would be better to answer this question than I. I think um, behavioral shaping, I'm very, very interested in this idea. I do think that the way that we talk to our patients about exercise makes a difference. Um, I actually am doing a little pilot right now with 14 clinicians who are all taking a uh, a course on motivational interviewing, which is uh, an approach mm. to trying to, you know, shape behavior, um, you know, and to learn how to talk to their patients about exercise. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm exceedingly interested in this, in this idea. Um, you know, I, I do think that, you know, to a certain extent, our job is to present people with the evidence Um, I also think that behavior is shaped by um, what's happening around the person, um, by environment, uh, physical as well as social. Um, And so I think that uh, I, 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 you know, we there is some published evidence and certainly a lot of anecdotal evidence that doctors who are more physically active themselves are much more likely to talk to their patients about exercise Um, so, you know, uh, but I think, you know, meanwhile, if you live in a place where you don't see anybody moving, you don't see anybody walking, you don't see anybody out and, you know, and, uh, 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 you know, lifting, lifting weights or walking around the neighborhood, um, then you're less likely to do it yourself. Um, if it's all, you know, all hidden, then, then it's more difficult to do. The other thing that I am exceedingly interested in that you mentioned at the outset of, of, of this hour is that people have the impression that they have to do, you know, 30 minutes in order for it to be useful. They have to do a certain amount. They have to, you know, sweat and do a lot in order for it to be useful. And I'm delighted to be working with a team of researchers who are trying um, to uh, actually see what happens if we assign people to do one minute of exercise every day. 
Um, and, you know, getting to this idea of the exercise snack, you know, um, and, you know, there is value and we can show physiologic benefit uh, for people doing very, very short periods of time. My colleague, Marty Gabala, has made, uh, I don't know how much money he's made, but he's, he's, I hope he's made some money on his books about the one minute workout. And, you know, there are, uh, uh, you know, there's work coming out of his lab that, uh, that suggests that doing less could be, could be just as useful. I think that that kind of work, and I think that in what I do and the population that I work in, a concept that I'm very interested in that I think um, needs to be tried is the concept of, um, you know, in, in cancer research, when we do in, in drug studies, they're interested in the maximally tolerated dose, right? So that's a concept of trying to get to the maximally tolerated dose. And in, in our case, we're trying to sell broccoli, you know, the equivalent of broccoli, right? So because it's unpopular, we want to know what the minimally effective dose might be. So how little can the person do and they still get an effect for their fatigue or their for their anxiety or for, you know, for body composition or whatever changes we're looking for? That's really a great way to put it. It makes me think of what's the... Uh, alternative medicine in which you try to reduce the concentration of a solution to homeopathy. Homeopathy. Yes. So you, it's the homeopathic approach. Homeopathic exercise. Oh my God. (laughs) I think there's a new field. There you go. As you were talking about the importance of seeing those around you exercise, I will tell you, you know, my true confessions woman is I exercise every single solitary day very robustly because I can go to free classes here at Gustavus and people notice when I'm not in them. And it has been the biggest challenge for me, I have to embarrassedly admit, during COVID has been that I don't have my team of exercisers and it is just a, a mighty struggle for me to say, yes, I'd like to sweat that hard all by myself in my backyard. It's a challenge. It's really a challenge. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, it is. Yes, it is. So you know, <laughs> put, your, put your sneakers by the door. There you go. Uh, I would note for our listeners that if you uh, Google Catherine Schmitz and look for videos, you will find many, many videos of Catherine doing something for one minute by herself or leading a room full of people doing something for one minute, often squats or maybe butt kicks. And it's really, they're extremely inspiring. And it's made me start to think as I would like to start doing that at philosophy conferences, actually just saying, okay, everybody don't just do the one minute stand up, stand up and uh, pump your, I'd love to see those philosophers do that. We're of course uh, not entirely sure that we have bodies. So for us it'd be a bigger struggle at any rate. I like to end these with an invitation to people to um, make big claims uh, to big groups of people. So if you had the ideal bully pulpit, what would you say and to whom would you want to direct those words? And it can be about what we've just been talking about, or maybe you have another issue that you'd like to air. Hmm. Um, you know, there's so many. <laughs> oh, take a couple. It's yeah. okay. So, uh, so I think the first one would be to patients, uh, to cancer patients. Um, uh, I, I would say um, you can move through cancer. You absolutely can move through cancer. And uh, I would say it is exceedingly important that you do so. 
um, for your own well-being. Um, it may actually save your life. Um, and uh, if you have a couple of days where you have really horrible symptoms, yes, fine. Take a break, but then get right back at it. Put the sneakers at the front door, um, you know, so you trip on them. Um, and, uh, and you know, you know that it's important to, to get back to it. I think that, um, I would also want to say something brief to, uh, clinicians and, um, to clinicians, um, I would say, um, uh, I think there is increasingly an ethical issue with not, uh, providing exercise. There is a lot of fear around providing exercise because they fear that they're going to put patients in harm's way. And what I would say to those clinicians is, I believe you're in fact putting patients in harm's way by not having your patients exercise. Mm -hmm. And on those uh, inspiring thoughts, I want to say thank you again to Catherine Schmitz, who will be presenting at Nobel Conference on October 6th and 7th, and will also be participating in a couple of roundtable discussions. So you all might get a chance to hear her talk again with uh, Dr. Carl June. Um, so please do join us for that conference virtually. And thanks again, Dr. Schmitz, for your time today. Really appreciate it. You're so welcome. Thank you very much for the invitation. This was fun.